The Revolt of 2020 by Patrick Johnston. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Patrick Johnston. Read by Daniel Meyer. By kind permission of the author, this reading of The Revolt of 2020 is available for free distribution. Stay tuned at the end of this reading for more information and links to additional resources. Chapter 8. Washington, D.C. If your sheriff doesn't get his act together, I'm going to send him a bureaucratic nightmare of alphabet agencies to do his job for him. Do you understand? For the last time, shouted Victor Myers into the phone, I want that sheriff on the phone, and I want him on the phone now. Sir, the secretary replied, he is out on the scene of an accident, and he is not responding to his radio. I will give him a message if you... I am not leaving another message. You tell that slug to call me back, or I'm going to have him removed from office for obstruction of justice. Maybe even prosecute him as an accomplice to every violation he tolerates. You got that? Yes, calmly replied the elderly secretary at the sheriff's office in Bozeman, Montana. Um, can you spell your last name for me again? Tell him it's the Attorney General. Click. We have a number of different police and sheriff departments in Montana, Wyoming, Utah, and Idaho that are giving us a problem, Victor Myers informed the president by way of their encrypted laptop system. A problem? She repeated with a frown. Nowhere are the allegations of hate speech more numerous or severe, and nowhere is the insubordination so bold and uncompromising. One of them won't even return my calls. Get someone out there to break them, for goddesses' sake, answered the president. The Bureau is overwhelmed, Madam President, so we need to make an example of somebody. With your permission, I'm going to send Dunworth out there today to personally handle one particularly popular troublemaker. The jet will be ready within the hour. That's encouraging, the President answered. Why don't you flex for us, Vic? Have as much media there as you can. That's the plan, said the AG. As soon as the President hung up the phone, her secretary buzzed her. Madam President, Danny Connor is here to see you. Danny Connor? Give him a nickel and send him to the local Salvation Army, she balked with a sneer. A moment later, the secretary buzzed again. Madam President, he said you should be aware that he knows about the accident. I don't know what he's talking about, and he won't elaborate, but he told me that you'd want to know. The president winced. How does he know about that? Send him in. Send him in right away. I know Danny left the room before Hamilton made the announcement. Did someone snitch, she thought? Danny entered the room wearing a three-piece royal blue suit with a bright yellow silk tie. It is a pleasure to see you again, Madam President. How do you know about the accident? Her unforgiving tone made Danny Connor's heart drop. I came to you to apologize, Madam President. I am behind you on this anti-abortion initiative 100%, he lied. I beg of you to give me another chance. Answer my question! Danny cleared his throat. When I was downstairs, I remembered that I had left a novel on Sandra's bookshelf. When I came up, I overheard part of the conversation. It was easy to overhear with everybody raising their voices like they were. Madam President, I am glad you are doing what you're doing. Please, he said as she looked down and began to twiddle her thumbs. Please, give me another chance. It appears my strength with Fitzgerald. My forthrightness and insight has become my weakness with your administration. I will never publicly question you again like that, Madam President. Please, give me another chance. So, Danny knows about the accident, Brighton thought to herself. I guess he is a man I do not want as my enemy right now. Sit down, she told him as she pointed to the large burgundy leather chair in front of her desk. Danny, you marred my credibility with the others. I need your understanding and encouragement right now. I also need your insight. She tapped the intercom. Sandra? Yes, Madam President. Get Daniel Connor the minutes to the meetings he has missed. He will be rejoining us. Please see that he gets his ID returned to him right away. It was not easy for Danny to conceal his glee at hearing those words. He was getting his job back and Josh Davis was getting his inside man for the story of his life.
In what many pro-lifers suspected to be a publicity stunt, President Brighton held a high-profile meeting with the leaders of several major Christian denominations and dozens of large pro-life and pro-family organizations on the eve of what may have been one of the largest protests ever in Washington, D.C. Two and a half million protesters had begun to flood the streets of the nation's capital when the national pro-life and conservative leaders who planned the protest unexpectedly called it off. Protesters initially received encouraging news that, in response to the combined political pressure from the groups who sponsored the protest, the President's Justice for All initiative would only target violent anti-abortionists. In fact, in the meeting with the administration, the leaders of these organizations agreed to policy changes in exchange for two things. One, leniency for personal and corporate violations of the President's initiative, and two, continued 501c3 tax-exempt status. The administration also promised funds would be distributed to their organizations to help them investigate their own members for violent tendencies against abortion clinics and abortionists. It was a suitable compromise for them. Instead of prosecuting the chief violators of the Justice for All initiative, Margaret Brighton was making them partners in its implementation. The president's policy was very effective. The leaders of the protests all over the nation suddenly became more tolerant toward the president's initiative, encouraging their members that the Justice for All initiative was a temporary necessity due to the presence of an extremely dangerous and violent element within the pro-life movement that must be exposed and stopped. The steam had been knocked out of the conservative religious political movement, and protests dwindled in numbers and rarely made front-page news. Federal investigators targeted those who tried to organize protests independently and found conservative and pro-life leaders worthy allies for intelligence. The president didn't need undercover agents in the churches of the nation. The leadership of those 501c3 churches and pro-life organizations freely volunteered for her. Mr. Knight, you have taken things too far this time. You are a threat to our majority. You need to know when you have said enough. You are ruining your influence in Congress. Four conservative Republican stalwarts and a senior national right to life, R-I-T-E, lobbyist, were relentless in their criticism of Congressman Knight for his recent radical comments on television. Mr. Knight raised his hands to try to calm the storm of criticism. Gentlemen, I didn't mean for it to come out the way it did. I know it appeared insensitive, and I'm sorry. But face it, all I did was state an obvious fact. Thousands of babies are alive because their murderers died. Oh, come on, James! I'm not glad they died. I don't celebrate it. But you need to face the fact that abortionists murder people. The right-to-life lobbyist was the most vocal opponent of Knight's careless rhetoric. Almost every prestigious pro-life organization in the country is condemning your radical statement, Mr. Knight. Well, surprise, surprise, Knight retorted sarcastically. We pulled you aside because we represent the mainstream pro-life movement in Congress and... What pro-life movement in Congress, Knight interrupted? Show me how the pro-life movement has moved anywhere but backwards. The right-to-life leader continued. You have to understand how these things come across to the American public in a time like this. We have to be in this for the long haul and be careful not to alienate so many fellow Republicans and pro-lifers with our hasty words. We could lose our majority because of you. The others nodded in enthusiastic agreement. And we know what the Democrats will do to the unborn. You're helping them, not the cause of protecting life. James Knight sighed and settled back into his chair, playing with the idea that it may be preferable to eat humble pie simply to settle the nerves of the pro-life leaders in Congress. Well, I'm sorry I embarrassed you, but our party and the mainstream pro-life movement need to start acting like they really are killing 3,500 babies a day. Their countenances revealed that they didn't consider that statement an apology. We need a plan to finally get the Right to Life Act passed, and I think I've got one, Knight told them. Oh, really? the senior rep said with eyebrows raised. The Republican Party has a majority by eight votes in the House, right? Heads nodded, unsure of where Knight was taking them. I've started the Priority Life Caucus. There are five of us so far. If each of the four of you, some of the most active pro-lifers in the House, will join, then we can put the Republican leadership in the position to debate and pass the Right to Life Act or else lose their majority vote. Lose their majority? What in the world are you talking about? one of them balked. 
Listen, if nine of us will stand up and refuse to vote on a single piece of Republican legislation until the Right to Life Act is passed, then the Republican leadership has got to capitulate in order to keep their power. Not vote on Republican legislation? Yes, Knight answered. They'll have to defer to us or else the Democrats will prevail over them in the House. We make our party choose between banning abortion and losing power. That's crazy, one of the men answered. You're talking about hijacking Congress! Absolutely, Knight admitted with a smile. We can stop this abortion holocaust in its tracks. Just nine pro-lifers, that's all we need to force this Congress to protect the preborn. Knight was very enthusiastic about his plan, but the pro-life Republicans around the room were acting like he had just announced he had dynamite strapped to his chest. The senior rep laughed heartily as if he had just heard a joke. If there ever was a recipe for political disaster, I had just heard it. You just haven't thought this through, James, another criticized him. Even if we did force the House leadership to put it through and held out until the Republicans voted it up, this president would never sign it. Never! The courts would never let it stand anyway, James. It'd all be a waste of time. Knight had a ready response to these objections. Then we employ the same strategy to force Congress to restrict the scope of the courts. That's within Congress's constitutional rights. Congress can limit the court's jurisdiction. What's gotten into you, James? One of the men asked. Knight furrowed his brow. Quit with the ad hominem insults and deal with the issue. We can force Congress and the courts to protect the preborn. We can save them. You are a troublemaker, James Knight. Troublemaker? Knight paused, irritated by the reluctance of these conservative colleagues to join his priority life caucus. I'll tell you about trouble. Imagine how much trouble our nation is in for the slaughter of over 65 million people. Republicans appointed most of the Supreme Court justices that passed Roe v. Wade and reinforced it time and time again. Children continue to die even when we have a Republican executive and a Republican majority in Congress. Please, we've got to draw the line in the sand far enough to the right so that the child killers aren't standing comfortably beside us, lest our hands be stained with innocent blood. If we just had a handful of pro-lifers who will prioritize life more than the Republican agenda, more than getting re-elected... I'm sick of your preaching, James. An older rep gathered his papers and prepared to exit. Your plan would be a political nightmare. Why is it that doing what is necessary to protect the preborn is always a political nightmare to you, but apathy and complacency is best for the cause? Knight was passionate as he pleaded with them. The answer was the same with everyone to whom he had spoken. It was never the right time to ban abortion. Why is continued regulation of child killing and continued funding of abortions through Planned Parenthood and Title X of Medicaid always what's best for the party? Wheels move slowly in the government, the right-to-life lobbyist reminded him. You have to admit that we have had many successes. A bipartisan Congress banned the partial birth abortion procedure. The Supreme Court upheld that ban. That's a tremendous success. Oh, please, James retorted. The lone protester at the abortion clinic down the street has saved more lives than that quarter of a billion-dollar partial birth abortion ban did. Another rep started in. James, we've worked successfully for parental consent legislation. Knight rebutted with sarcasm. Get your parents' permission, and then you can kill the baby. What does that make us? After a pause, he answered his own rhetorical question. Accomplices, that's what it makes us. We do what we can, James, without risking our re-election. Just look at all of the flack that we have taken for our pro-life legislation. Well, we need another standard for success, Knight retorted. Bartering away the lives of the preborn at the congressional bargaining table makes us accomplices in their murders. There's one thing that will stay the wrath of God on our land for the shedding of innocent blood, and it's justice. Here we come full circle, the senior rep observed. James, I'm starting to think that you'd like to just go on a killing spree to make God happy. The state is obliged by God to do justice, Knight answered. Come on, James, one rep commented in a critical mocking tone. This is Congress, not seminary. We have to be practical. Knight was undeterred. We are obligated to God, to the Constitution, and to our people to give justice to the preborn, and we will give an account to our Creator for it. One of the representatives grimaced, mumbled his disapproval incoherently, stood up, and stomped toward the door. Another representative stood up and blurted out, You, Mr. Knight, have gone off the deep end. 
Wait, Knight called out, but the two representatives ignored him and walked out the door, followed by the right-to-life lobbyist who left the door open behind him. The last two reps began to stand as they shook their heads. One of them spoke up. We have enough problems in America with Margaret Brighton rolling her cigarettes with the pages of the Constitution next door. We have vigilante wackos shooting abortionists as they are blowing out their birthday candles. Do you realize the flack we are getting from this administration simply for our lack of support of their so-called Justice for All initiative? We do not need to be inventing any new problems for ourselves. I like your enthusiasm, James, another rep said, but you're investing too much of your energy into a lost cause. Fight a winnable battle. Don't alienate yourself from the pro-life grassroots that put you in office. Better them than God, Knight retorted, standing up with the others as they turned to leave. He pleaded with them one last time, This fight is winnable if we will trust God. The door slammed halfway through his final sentence. Thank you for listening to this reading from The Revolt of 2020. This chapter was read by Daniel Meyer and engineered by Park Leacock. The Revolt of 2020 and its sequels, The American Tyranny of 2020 and The Uncivil War of 2020, are available for purchase at docjohnstonnovels.com. That's docjohnstonnovels.com. O Lord, turn us back to you. Forgive our sins and heal our land.